Right now, new and returning vidIQ customers can buy one month of vidIQ and get the second month free. This offer is going on until July 31st and can be used towards a purchase of either a pro or boost level account. All you have to do is visit vidIQ.com bonus. If you've been looking to unlock our full suite of tools, now is a great time. You have until July 31st, vidIQ.com bonus. For a long time, I've wanted to sit down with somebody who really understands the laws, specifically as they pertain to being a YouTube content creator. So I'm really glad that not only did we get the opportunity to sit down with somebody who is an actual legal expert, but today's guest does have that understanding of the law as it pertains to YouTube. And today we have a ton of questions for her. Everything from fair use to filing your taxes at the end of the year, these are all things that I think a lot of creators, especially new ones, really take for granted. Welcome to Tube Talk, the show dedicated to helping you become a better video creator so you can get more views, subscribers, and build your audience. Brought to you by vidIQ. Download for free at vidIQ.com. Hello and welcome back to the Tube Talk podcast. My name is Dan Carson. And I'm Rob Wilson. Thank you for joining us. And our guest today is the Emily D. Baker. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so happy to be here with you both. Thank you for having me. Tell us a little bit about you, your channel, and uh, that I didn't have nothing else. You and your channel. And things. I am Emily D. Baker. I am a former deputy district attorney. I was a deputy district attorney in LA County for over 10 years. I transitioned to doing legal commentary and legal consulting, and my YouTube channel focuses on legal commentary. So I am everyone's favorite legal commentator. I focus heavily on pop culture, but also on news. It is my goal to help people understand the legal stuff that goes on in our lives through the stories that we all want to talk about anyway. So if a real housewife is getting sued, if Kanye West is leaking his recording contracts on Twitter. We are going to break down the legal side of it with a lot of cursy words, a lot of humor, and hopefully a lot of laughs. So that's what that's what we're doing over on the YouTubes. Dan, is this the point where we usually add, um, we're not legal experts, so you should take all of our information for uh, as entertainment purposes. However, dot, 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 we do have a legal expert in here today. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's fair. I've been a licensed attorney for over 15 years. It's a good disclaimer. I like it. And a lot of YouTube is like, we're not legal experts. It's like, right. I get it. I, <laughs> I am, in fact, a legal expert and legal commentator. I know, I know the things. It's really frustrating to have to go through live stream after live stream and we always hit these topics of copyright issues and fair use and things like that and we have our view on things we have our limited understanding and it's so frustrating to go by the way not sure i I, you guys need this reminder but i'm not a legal expert so we begged and pleaded with a legal expert to come on and join us on the podcast because (laughs) i I don't know about rob but i have a, a handful of questions of my own Oh, I've got a quick fire round coming up at the end, so get ready for that. I'm happy to talk about it. And I think one of the things that's hard, especially with what we do in social media and what what we create on YouTube, is that the marks keep moving. So there yeah. are your traditional contract concepts, your traditional copyright concepts, but then there's new privacy laws. States are rolling out their own privacy laws. Uh, Google chose to ignore the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act and then went, oh, right, we should maybe comply with the laws now that we've been fined by the FTC. There are rules about advertising and those rules keep moving. But everyone with a 
Gmail address can start a YouTube channel, take a brand deal, and get themselves into a whole bunch of trouble by not doing it right. So it is helpful. I find that being able to break those things down through fun concepts or through like what's going on with PewDiePie getting this video taken down. Is that just a YouTube thing? Is that a YouTube legal thing? And breaking down those concepts help people understand through stories because they're like, oh, right, I don't want to do it that way. I remember the story, even if they don't remember the law necessarily behind it. As long as we get to the point, it helps. Emily, can we start with your YouTube origin story in the sense that um, when did you figure out that your vocation, you know, legal chit chat would be of interest on YouTube? Because, you know, traditionally, there are certain things that you don't think are necessarily going to translate well as a YouTube channel. Absolutely. I started on YouTube over five years ago while I was still a district attorney. I was having a lot of back issues and multiple back surgeries and a spinal fusion. And I was using YouTube as a community. I was talking mostly about tech. I could not talk about legal concepts because I was a representative of the county of Los Angeles. As I transitioned out of that position, um, I did a TED Talk that gained some traction, and people were like, I would love to hear you talk about this more, and I was doing entrepreneurial consulting. So my clients were YouTubers or other online entrepreneurs, and I was really in that space, and I started a podcast, uh, The Emily Show, that was really to help teach people about these legal concepts. Then more and more pop culture news started happening during COVID, and I shifted my entire channel away from being a hodgepodge hobby of tech and unboxings and just chatting about whatever. I started doing live streams during COVID to talk about the Paycheck Protection Program and concepts that were helpful to the online entrepreneurs I was serving. But I really wanted to talk about Kanye West contracts and the Britney Spears uh, conservatorship. And friends of mine were like, just talk about it on YouTube. And I started covering a YouTube lawsuit with YouTubers and my channel gained over 55,000 subs in one month and wow. has just taken off. So I didn't I didn't know if there was going to be a group there, but every time I ran into people in online spaces, we would talk about the consulting stuff and then they'd be like, "Okay, what's happening really with Britney Spears?" or "Can we talk about these contracts that you were tweeting about?" And I realized people were interested in understanding the deeper story, not just the "Oh, Kanye West leaked all these recording industry contracts." People were like, "Right, but what do they say? What is the tea? Like, what is the gossip in the legal?" And that was a sweet spot for me. And then Erica Girardi, real housewife of Beverly Hills and her husband are in a whole host of different lawsuits. And as I started talking about those topics and live streaming about them, they grew and grew. And my channel is has grown. And that shift happened in October. So it's been five years till my channel just kind of started blowing up in October. And it's been a really fun journey. My communities name themselves the Law Nerds. All of my socials have grown because people really want to understand. I was very surprised that people were in for long form content with regard to legal topics. And my community loves it. It's been the most fun place to be on the internet for me. And I'm so happy that I made the shift. So stepping back to the broad um, idea of finding a YouTube audience, because we often suggest to like gamers uh, that they should tie in their um, their interests and their passions with things that are happening right now. You know, whether it be the Mandalorian, how can you tie it into Minecraft? And then I, I think creators think, how can I apply that to my area of expertise and passion? And so you, as, as, a, as a former district attorney, are kind of proving that point that it can be done almost in any, any YouTube topic, in that you're taking 
cultural events and tying them into your expertise. And there is always an audience out there if you're just willing to uh, to, to take those two concepts. I mean, we we sometimes call this trend jacking or, or news jacking. Yeah, yeah, ab- it, it absolutely is, and it's it's really in my sweet spot. A lot of the lawyers on YouTube, and there are numerous lawyers on YouTube, uh, mostly men, but there are other other women as well that talk mostly about politics. Right. And okay. the last thing I've wanted to do in the last six months at all is talk about politics. I mean, <laughs> I'll talk about the Dominion defamation suits just because some of those lawsuits have shade in them. But the perspective I've coming from is like, this is shady. Like, look at what these lawyers wrote. Damn, look at them. Yeah. I'm not coming from the let's talk about who's right or wrong. We're just talking about what the documents say. And doing that in pop culture has, I think, given my audience an opportunity to understand more about things like defamation and contracts, but do it in a way where we're talking about topics that are a little lighter. And I mean, don't tell the free Britney crowd, but even a little less controversial than something like politics, which is where most of the legal coverage on YouTube lives. And I think it's where people felt it had to live. But now I'm seeing other channels that normally cover the Supreme Court, the appellate courts and politics saying, wait, what's the T over here? And I'm like, look, (laughs) y'all, I know now you want to talk about the pop culture stuff, too. So it's been a really fun way to teach kind of heavy concepts through the stories we all talk about anyway. But Uh trend trend jacking my the nice thing about using uh, vidIQ is I'm able to see the little dark blue tags and how my videos are doing on those tags. And it's been very interesting to see how those videos have been ranking and ranking well on the topics that I talk about. This episode of Tube Talk is brought to you by vidIQ's competitors tool. Checking in on what your competition is doing can be a great way to keep up with trends in your area of expertise. If you have vidIQ installed, you can find this tool on the left-hand sidebar within the YouTube studio. And from there, you can begin adding channels as your competitors. I like to select a range of channels from the ones that I find to be the leading voices in my niche all the way down to channels that get similar views to my own. The way that this helps me personally is that I can start to actually detect patterns in the types of videos that my competitors are releasing, which helps me discover some fresh ideas that are already proven to be working. The vidIQ extension works in both Chrome and Firefox browsers, and you can download it for free at vidIQ.com. Uh, there was just one more question I wanted to ask before I throw it back to Dan. Um, your community, they're called, is it Law Nerds? Is that right? Yes, they're called the I, Law Nerds. I want to know, um, because this is something that we've always struggled with at vidIQ. We still don't have a community name. Uh, but So I just want to know, who decided that? Was it the community themselves, sort of you starting to use that term? Like, how did that grow organically? Because that's a, I think that's a real sign that you have like a, a hardcore super fans who are so loyal to your to your cause and channel. The Law Nerds named themselves. So this was a community-driven yeah. name. Yeah. My original podcast had been the Get Legit podcast, and I'd kind of referred to my group as the Legit Crew. And that's because I was really helping business owners get legit in the the realm of business consulting. But as I shifted into commentary, it felt out of step, which is why the podcast is now The Emily Show. And we've shifted into this really nerdy space. I make references to things like Supernatural, The Mandalorian within breaking down these topics. There's a lawsuit going on right now. And every time we talk about one witness, I the witness has a name, but then she dropped a bomb that was like, tell Cersei it was me. And I'm like, tell Cersei it was me. So there's this nerdy element to it that's very organic to me. 
And I'm finding that my audience gets my references. They're in my rough age range. They understand the music I listen to. We like the same things on TV. So we are all nerds and anyone can be a law nerd because people are curious about these topics if they're not lawyers, if they have no training. And now I'm also finding I have a large population of law students in my audience that are like, this is way more interesting than my civil pro procedure, you know, professor talking about these, you're talking about the exact same stuff, but you're talking about it with real housewives. And that's way more accessible. And making law accessible, making any topic accessible is what YouTube's really built for. It's it's distilling information so people can understand and have some fun. And my chats on my live streams really feel like an old school like AOL chat room. And my audience gets that reference because they all loved old school AOL chat rooms. And it gets a little busy when we get to like seven to 10,000 people on stream, but it's still a lot of fun. I was waiting for the number too, because this community sounds very big. And I know that YouTube streams, like you could have a channel with like ours, 800,000 subscribers, and we get, you know, two to 600 concurrent viewers. You have seven to 8,000 concurrent viewers? We, our max concurrent has been 10,000. We wow. are regularly between four and 7,000. Sometimes if I just pop off randomly, it's interesting how the non-scheduled will grow. Friday nights, we five to 7,000 concurrent viewers. Wow. Yeah. It's, I think it's so important for people to take an interest in this topic. Uh, just the law at large, but especially, I think, as YouTube creators. And one of the things I wanted to ask you is just, just going back to, like I guess, the beginning stages. What are some common legal mistakes that you, you tend to see people make with regards to starting a YouTube channel? The first, the first thing I wish I had known that's not specifically legal, but becomes personal safety legal is don't go ahead and use the Gmail address you use for everything for your YouTube channel. The address that you've given out to every grocery store, every email list, every everything, that's not your channel email. That email is already out there. That email is probably on the dark web. That email is not the email that you want to tie your potential future to, especially if you want to grow your channel. So starting clean in the online space is the first bit of advice I would give to anyone who's like, I want to start today. Start clean. Start a new Gmail address. It's okay. <laughs> you, you can have more than one. Start your channel with an email address that's nowhere else because it's going to make it easier for you to protect what you're growing. The second thing is keep an eye towards protecting what you're growing and don't build something in somebody else's space. Meaning if you're going to name your channel something, Instagram secrets is probably not going to work because Instagram is trademarked. So naming your YouTube channel after somebody else's intellectual property can be um, difficult to make it grow. Yes, people start YouTube channels as a hobby, but if you start a YouTube channel going, I'd like to make some money. I spent five years making maybe $200 a year on YouTube. And then as my channel grew and as my watch time grew, I'm now looking at the amount of money I'm making and looking at other channels going, wait a second, how much are they making? Because I know how much I'm making and I feel like it's silly. But how much are, oh gosh, there is a lot of money to be made on YouTube. And I think that that's a beautiful thing. But as you start doing that, you have to treat it like a business. That means the money has to have 30% lupped out for taxes and just put in a savings account somewhere. Just put it somewhere else. Do not spend it. That's not your Vuitton fund. That is not your buy cool stuff to show off on a vlog fund. That is a tax fund. 
If you don't pay it all for taxes, then you can go shopping with it. And as you start treating it like a business, there's a lot of really fun things you can do, particularly in the US, because our tax system is basically a game. I mean, all of you that want to game like Robinhood and game the GameStop stocks, that's a lot of fun, but you can do that with the tax system too. It's set up like a game where you can be like, oh, I can buy this gear and use this for this channel, and that's all business expenses. Look at it like a business, set it up like a business. That means you need a separate bank account, not a PayPal account, not a Venmo account, not a Vimeo account, not a, not a, you need a separate business bank account. You have to, have to, have to, to put your YouTube money in once your channel starts monetizing. And I don't see people doing that enough. So look at it like a business early on, make sure that you're building in your own lane with regard to intellectual property not tagging your entire channel name to somebody else's intellectual property. And then you start to have the conversations about when is it time to incorporate? When is it time to be an LLC? Those sorts of things come with monetization and they're good conversations to have. But the first thing is separate the money, put money aside for taxes, treat it like a business. Does that make sense? It, absolutely. I have about 15 <laughs> other things, but I don't want to overwhelm people. It's like, and then learn how to do sponsorships legally and things like that. Those come next. I want to add a further disclaimer at this point. Dan and myself are not tax financial experts either. <laughs> Please continue. I am also not a, I am not a filing tax professional, but I have worked with the U.S. Attorney's Office in their tax fraud division. So I have perspectives on tax and finance from both the criminal prosecution side and from the business owner side and from helping businesses strategize their taxes. Because yes, you can strategize your taxes. And there's a lot of opportunity owning your own business, particularly something like a YouTube channel, where I mean, I don't know a YouTuber that doesn't love gear and doesn't love changing out gear, buying gear, trying gear. I haven't met one yet. I love gear. I've got too many cameras. But those all become business expenses. Just real quick on why that's a bonus and lawyers have different perspective than tax professionals, but business money, money that comes from YouTube to you doesn't have any taxes taken out of it yet. No taxes. You get right. all of it, all that money, all that coin. If you use it for business expenses, you use it for business expenses. You get taxed on what's left over. Versus when you get paid from a job, taxes come out first, then you spend it, then you ask the government to give you some of it back. With your business, you get it, you spend it, what is not spent gets taxed. And that is the difference in using kind of that pre-tax and post-tax dollar, which gives a lot of opportunity to really build and build legacy with a business, even if so it's a side hustle. So does that mean, this is a terrible question for podcasts, uh, audio um, thing, but for all of these trinkets on my shelves then, can I claim all of these as um, um, expenses since they are in videos? So I would have purchased those with business funds versus trying to get the money back from the IRS. I would have lopped those as a business expense. Yes. All right. I, I'm in Canada, so, uh, so, so I'm going to okay. try and walk, walk in away In the and United hide. States. <laughs> <laughs> I am not a Canadian expert by any means, but business ex using business expenses and knowing that the money is different, that's why I always say, yeah. first you put it in a separate bank account. That is yep. your business money. Taxes don't come out of it yet. I say put money aside for taxes, but you can use it for valid business expenses. And in the US, those targets can shift every year because our government does play football with the tax system as a kind of a 
like a perks. It's like, oh, we want to do this. Let's do this. I have lots of content talking about my feelings on tax, but (laughs) if you understand it, you can really benefit when you use your business as a proper business because people feel like, oh, that seems like a lot. No, it's great. There's lots of awesome stuff you can do with it. What you said earlier, that was a lot. Uh, it was a lot. A lot, of, a lot about that. taxes. I, I'm kind of <laughs> I'm hung up on something you said earlier, though, about Gmail accounts. I, I heard that, and I it's something I relate to as well because I actually, without thinking, like, oh, I should start fresh. I just I did. It wasn't for any reason other yes. than, ah, uh, you know, this email's already kind of full of spam. I'll start a new email and and what have you. And what that taught me, along with some other lessons along the way, is you really can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. You know, the same can be said for taxes. If you don't, if you don't save your money and then you get that tax bill at the end of the year and you can't afford it, now you're on a payment plan and you're trying to pay that off while you're still growing your business, while you're still getting income and you just end up in this pit, you know? So with everything, everything you just said, you really can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. And it's so important to be thinking about this stuff if you want YouTube to be even a side hustle, as you put it, or a full blown business one day where you're actually hiring people. Uh, but which that brings me to a question I wanted to ask, which is, and maybe this is kind of silly, maybe it's a bit naive, but is there a benchmark at which people should not only be, you know, separate bank accounts and emails and everything like that, but when would a YouTuber consider, you know, becoming an LLC, you know, formalizing the business? Absolutely. So the mileage may vary on this advice because everyone's particular situation depends, but for benchmarks, the state you are in can matter for this. California having a higher threshold. So California has a flat rate corporate tax of $800 a year. If you're not making at least $800 a year on YouTube, it doesn't make a ton of sense from a financial perspective to be an LLC unless there are other circumstances of liability and things like that that you need to protect against. But those are conversations to have with somebody local to you. But if you're in a state like Florida where it's like, here's 25 bucks, I'm an LLC, it it changes the threshold a little bit because you can start to more easily open those business bank accounts and more easily take advantage of some taxes. I always say that until you could really take advantage of the tax savings of an LLC, presuming you're a YouTuber, that's not going to be high liability. So you're not going to get sued for doing what you're doing. Um, you're not in somebody's home filming where you need to have like a, a LLC to protect you because you're going into homes and, and doing those types types of things then it's when the tax savings make sense to file. And I always say do that sooner rather than later, because again, you can have a video go viral and go from making a hundred or $200 a month on YouTube to making 10,000, 20,000, a hundred thousand. If you don't already have that LLC set up, you are going to have substantial tax consequences to that big month of money that you've made. So Depending on the state you're in, I would say sooner rather than later, once you're making regular income on YouTube. If you're getting $100 a year, it's not really going to matter. And I would say under about $1,000 a year, it's it's not where you want to look at. But if you're monetized and making uh, $1,000 a month, it's time to have a conversation with somebody local to you like, hey, where can I save on taxes based on what I'm buying for my YouTube channel and the type of channel I am? So Sooner rather than later, I think a lot of people get nervous about starting an LLC. It's not that hard. Um, And there can be quite a lot of tax benefits, but then you really have to 
do all the the prickly little legal things of having your separate bank account, having a separate EIN, but it also allows you to work with contractors. If you want to bring in an editor, having an LLC contract with their LLC takes you out of some of those employment implications most of the time. Things like that start to become considerations of, oh, now I want to hire some help. Does it make sense for my business to hire them versus me taking the hit as a sole proprietor tax-wise? Does that make sense? So that's a lot of information. Yeah, I think to, so let's put that into a very general, broad speaking YouTube terms. $1,000 a month just from ad revenue alone. You're yep. looking at a channel that's in the tens of thousands of subscribers and maybe bringing in about a million views a month. That's going to vary wildly, but that sounds about right, doesn't it, for, for, for somebody to start taking it seriously? Because yeah. from a YouTube sense, point of view you've you've probably worked out where your niche is or you've had some like semi-viral videos or you've built a community you're starting to take it seriously as a creator which means that you have to transfer some of that um accountability into you know making the revenue and making sure that you're you're following all of the local uh, laws in terms of finance and legal wise absolutely and i think that's a good benchmark because that's putting you in that you know Ten, twelve thousand dollars a year, yeah. roughly. You can actually start to see some tax benefits with that amount by being a corporation. Where if you're not making, like in California, if you're not even making eight hundred dollars a year, does paying those corporate taxes just for your YouTube channel really make the most sense? For a lot of people, no. For some, maybe yes. But I've seen lots of large creators not have LLCs and and really not realize it because you can make a lot of money on YouTube quickly, not realize it till later and go, oh, where is this money supposed to come from for taxes? That's an interesting question. Do you think there's a, a bit of a, a YouTube ticking time bomb in like maybe, because I don't know how fast the IRS are, um, but like perhaps in the UK and Europe, they tend to start to chase after people after a few years. Do you think there's many YouTube creators that are earning this money without realizing the tax implications? And then there's going to there's going to be a lot of people being chased for money that they're owed uh, five to 10 years down the road. I think it can happen. Whether it would happen 10 years out, I don't know. The one thing I do know from my work, and I've worked with the government, I've worked as a government attorney. The one thing I know about the US government and state governments is they will find their money. And YouTube is not going to take the hit on yeah. not paying you. YouTube turns over everything YouTube has paid you, the government has. It's when exactly, they match yeah, those numbers up is is the question. And the other thing is, as a YouTuber, if you're earning that income, not having your social security number on everything, being able to give out your tax ID number instead, if you're doing brand deals, if you are getting paid to speak, if you're doing sponsored content, starting to protect yourself that way, because as you grow on YouTube, security and personal security concerns also can grow. So protecting yourself through an LLC protects things like your home address. Um, in the online space, that that level of personal autonomy does start to erode a little bit. And having an LLC is another barrier between you and that. Though I have seen big creators where I've looked at their LLCs out of curiosity and been like, that's your house, bro. What are you doing? Do not put your home address. Listen, if you take nothing else away from this, if you don't subscribe to my channel, if you don't know who I am after today, hear me now. Do not put your home address on your LLC paperwork. It is public information. Do not put your home address on your LLC paperwork. It is public information. A really stupid question. What what address uh, 
can you put on there? Do you have to like have a, an office or like can you use a PO box? You have to have a business address. And in the US, I don't know if they do this in Canada, there are lots of virtual mailboxes. Right. And you can okay. set up a virtual mailbox yeah. and use that for your business address and your agent for service of process. There is a YouTuber involved in a lawsuit right now. When I pulled up the law document, the legal documents that were filed in court, some of the documents filed in court were their corporate information. And I'm looking through their corporate information sheets. I'm like, oh my God, that's that's a home address. And then, of course, I go to Google Maps and I was like, oh, thank God you've moved because that is actually your home address that's now filed in court documents. Most YouTubers aren't going to end up in lawsuits, but if YouTubers end up in lawsuits, it's going to end up being talked about on YouTube. (laughs) So (laughs) what you don't want is your home address on all that information. So, yeah, virtual P.O. boxes are are fantastic. Let's move into the um, the YouTube space then and your sphere of influence uh, a question i would like to ask here is considering you're covering lots of legal potentially sensitive matters have you um run into any problems with youtube as of yet in terms of maybe breaking community guidelines or having to contest video content that you've produced and hopefully given your knowledge you've been able to successfully navigate all of that or have you been c- pretty clean in that sense so far Um, I'm definitely conscientious of what I talk about and I will mark my own videos depending on the nature of what I talk about. There are times YouTube has gone back and marked, uh, marked videos. I've done light demonetization of like, oh, we think these topics are a bit out there. And I'm like, I mean, it's fair. I don't, I've talked about like the FKA Twigs lawsuit against, um, her former boyfriend, Shai LaBeouf, LaBeouf, however you pronounce his last name. The allegations in there are very heavy and very strong in the kind of assaultive and domestic relationship realm. I talk about it the way it's said in the lawsuit. So some of those videos, I will mark the type of content on them. So I don't have too many issues with YouTube because I will mark it myself. And I know going in that some of those topics are not as YouTube friendly. But when I mark them, I don't normally have issues with YouTube. There's been a few where YouTube has marked stuff and I'm like, what happened? And I, we called this lawsuit wave at the end of 2020 tsunami, like S U E like lawsuit tsunami. (laughs) And I got marked for depicting natural disasters. I was like, wait (laughs) a second, what is happening here? So I've learned better how to navigate that. I always tell creators from my perspective, just be really upfront and know what your content is. I know that I curse. I know that some of my content's going to get marked over 18. I talked about the um, Jeffrey Tubin incident where he was on a Zoom call with his coworkers. I didn't think to market 18 plus, but YouTube sure did take care of that for me. <laughs> Do you have to um, self-certify just out of interest? Have you ever had I, to fill out the um, thing that says, uh, like, does it follow this guideline, this guideline, bullying and harassment, cyberbullying? Because we don't monetize at VidIQ, so I never have to tackle that um, part. I do those on every, almost every video, and yeah, I will yeah. vary them based on the topics I right. talk about. So I do that for every video. I also curse, and I'm very upfront with the fact that I curse, but YouTube yeah. looks for, is there light cursing in the first two minutes or not? And I'm like... Well, no, I don't curse in the first two minutes of my video because now I know what their guidelines are. So when you certify your video for monetization at the end, you can go through and look at what they're looking for. And it's a really good way to know this is what YouTube's looking for. And I will go back because a lot of what I do is live streaming. 
if something has gone off the rails based on a question, I will go back and change how I've marked my monetization. But I haven't had a lot of problems when I've marked things. YouTube, I think there's now a trust built. Like when I mark stuff, they're like, okay, exactly. well, no, at least yeah. she's looking. Yeah. And I haven't had a lot of stuff that's been demonetized that hasn't been recertified to back to monetization after it's reviewed. And when I first started streaming, everything was immediately demonetized when I finished yeah. stream. That yeah. doesn't happen anymore. So yeah. it's, I feel like there's a learning process between like me and the algorithm and whoever's reviewing it and your channel. And I know that there's some kind of a trust built based on how accurate you report your own content. Yeah, I think that's a really good point of honesty is the best policy, especially with YouTube and it, and it's artificial intelligence. And I think this is similar with, um, I guess, the, the copper um, standards they're having there now in that you, you could lie and say your content's not made for kids and get away with it for maybe 20, 30 videos. But as your channel grows, as the income comes in, they're just going to lay the smack down on the channel once they discover it. Um, so, so it's good that it sounds like your your evidence of, that you can have a I don't know left field slightly edgy content, but as long as you're telling YouTube exactly what the content is, then you're kind of working collaboratively so that you earn the income that you're deserve, you deserve from your content. I've been very mindful, and I knew this going in. I chose that I was going to cover things in a honest way. So if certain words are used in a lawsuit, I say the words. I'm pulling up the document right. on screen. Yeah. I say what it is. And I let YouTube know I'm saying what it is. Yeah. Some things I do mark 18 plus because I think that the topics are tough, but I think they're important topics to talk about. If I want to talk about something that is a difficult topic, particularly in the uh, domestic violence and relational violence sphere of lawsuits that come up, I will sometimes just demonetize those videos. And I'm like, look, that this is not content that's going to be monetized, but I also don't want to monetize what somebody else is going through because I'm talking about it. So I know myself and I know what I'm comfortable with and I'm really happy. Again, we're guests on the YouTube platform, all of us. Yeah. I really like getting to work on YouTube. I really like getting to be a YouTuber and I want to make sure that if I ever have problems with the platform, they will look back at my history and be like, we've had a good working relationship together. Let's see if we can figure this out. So I really do. And I tell other people when they ask me, like, you curse a lot in your videos. I'm like, I do, but I'm always very upfront with what's in my videos and it hasn't been a problem. I want to shift gears a little bit because I can't, I can't end today's podcast without touching on this issue. It's one we encounter all the time. Every week we audit channels on YouTube and we run into a lot of new creators. I've had to say this phrase, I think twice in a row now for, for two different live streams. I've had to say, giving credit does not equal getting permission. And what I'm talking about is, is <laughs> this confusion around fair use, taking other people's content. There's a difference too between taking someone's content and just re-uploading it. That's obviously wrong. But then we get into the hairy territory of reaction channels and things like that where they're taking the content and they're trying to add to it a little bit, but really at the end that you look at the description, they're like, by the way, I didn't make part of this, you know, and, and they're hoping that just saves them. Can we smooth some of this over? Because it is, it's going to be very nice to, to point to something and say, by the way, we spoke to someone about this. <laughs> fair use. <laughs> oh, fair use. Look, transformative use means transformative use. Using a 30 second clip of, I was talking about Real Housewives and whether something said on New Jersey was defamation. Here's the 30 second clip of the show from Bravo. And then here's 
30 minutes of me talking about what's in that clip. That is not me just re-airing something. Um, YouTube, there's two parts of fair use. There's like the legal part of fair use, and then there's the YouTube algorithm part of fair use. And you have to stay in the green with both of those things because YouTube will very clearly skim through what you can and cannot do. I think a good guide for this are the kind of news compilation channels. You will see that they stick to between five and 15 seconds of anything that they share, and then they talk about it for two or three minutes. That's not them talking over it going, oh, wow, no way. Oh, weird. (laughs) That's actually them giving commentary on the thing. There's also a lawsuit right now with Kat Von D using a photographer's photograph and tattooing it onto somebody. It's not fair use. It's not transformative use. You're reproducing somebody else's thing in a different format. So also just reproducing somebody else's thing is not going to work. That's not to say you can't look at the structure of someone else's video and structure your videos the same way. That's half of what YouTube is right now. But when you're using clips of other people's stuff, it has to fall within fair use. But also know that with music, sometimes you're going to get swallowed up into copyright and you're going to have to fight for your fair use and you're going to have to know if you can fight for it. And if you choose wrong, it's like taxes. If you choose wrong, you're the one who's going to suffer the consequences of that and your channel can suffer the consequences of that. I always tell people to be mindful of sticking within that 10 to 15 second of clips, talking about it and making sure that if you are giving commentary, you are giving commentary, not just a, oh, no way. That's not that's not commentary. <laughs> that's not transformative. So Fair use doesn't cover everything, and having a fair use disclaimer is not enough if you're really just re-uploading 10 minutes of somebody else's content and being like, they said that. No, no. It is meant, it is meant, fair use is meant for news, essentially, and news reporting to be able to say, this is what's happening and this is what we've seen. So if you're keeping it in mind of the purpose, it will help you stay within the guides of the purpose is to share what happened and then to talk about it. Does that make do you, sense? It, Absolutely. It's maybe wonder about, do you think the current interpretations of fair use and I guess the legal laws over copyright um, are still a little antiquated in that they were created for a world before the internet? Um, and then as a follow-up question, how do you think, do you think YouTube does a good job legally wise in not only copyright but all senses of a term i mean you, we brought up copper briefly and the way they screwed up that but what do you think generally of youtube's um, attitude i mean compared to say for example tiktok where I, it feels as if a, the copyright interpretation is somewhat different the copyright interpretation on tiktok is very much different yeah. but i also think it tiktok is the easier one to talk about i think that tiktok has created a interesting and rough symbiotic relationship with the music industry and that the music industry sees enough benefit. But if they change their mind, TikTok is going to have very large problems. But TikTok does have some boundaries. I think they're working together. Are the laws antiquated? Absolutely. Are they going to continue to change? Absolutely. Are we going to see things like what's going on in Australia with, hey, does there need to be a link tax of some sort to Mm. use this content? Can you use this content? Do the platforms like YouTube need to pay for this content to be used or re-uploaded? It's going to be very interesting to see how they go. YouTube comes from a very, like, we're going to 
CYA first. We're going to cover our butts first. And the creator is the one that's going to suffer the consequences. So just falling within YouTube guidelines isn't always going to be enough because all of the channels made for kids fell within YouTube's guidelines until the FTC said, but YouTube, your guidelines are wrong. So you can't just adhere to YouTube's guidelines. You also have to adhere to the law. Just because YouTube isn't going to come knock at your door if you don't disclose a sponsorship doesn't mean that the FTC might not. And the Federal Trade Commission is cracking down on influencers. So it's not just fair use. It's also advertising. And those are the two biggest things I see as problematic on YouTube is that people aren't always adhering to the advertising rules. And that's where I think they're going to be crackdowns first before fair use, because there's more money in cracking down on people for misadvertising than there is for cracking down on people for fair use. That doesn't mean that channels like, you know, TV networks and what have you won't turn around and say, hey, you're using clips of all these channels are using clips of housewife shows, you need to actually license that from us. It's not enough to just say it's fair use. We'll see how that grows. I'm see I see a lot of YouTubers in the commentary community smacking at one another over you can't use clips of my videos and you can't use clips of that and I think we're going to see some shifts there as we continue to see the growth of kind of this cancel culture attitude within some of the communities on on YouTube of well you clip down my video and I'm going to privacy complain it or copyright strike it I think YouTube needs to grow in their regulation of the misuse of the things that they have in place. And that is something that I'm seeing uh, as hugely problematic within different creator communities because YouTube doesn't do much about the misuse of the reporting systems. That was a very long answer. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good answer. And that's, that's why it's been nice to just ask you a question and, and get all this information because it's just things that, you know, for one, I need brushing up on. I, I, I look at this stuff when it's relevant and then it just kind of slips your mind and someone will inevitably ask or will see it in, in real time during a live stream. And like, I, re- I remember thinking that wasn't quite right. So I, I think conversations like this are just so important to have. Uh, one of the, Now, this is not a YouTube topic, but this reminds me of a situation that just happened a few months back with Twitch. And I don't know if you covered that on your channel, but Twitch suddenly uh, woke up and said, hey, uh, everybody who's used music in your, your VODs, your video on demand content, yep. yeah, we, we had to pull all those. Sorry about that. DMCA takedowns left and right. It was, it was the biggest news there for a couple days. And I sat on the sidelines of that wondering why it was such big news because I come from this YouTube background and YouTube has had this music thing buttoned up for quite some time. And I just thought everyone kind of knew not to use copywritten music in their content, but apparently I was wrong. I think that people thought it wouldn't matter. I don't think they thought they could do it, but no, actually that's not fair. Maybe with the rise of things like being able to use music on your Instagram stories and being able to use music in reels and TikTok, Mm. people were like, Oh, well we can just use music everywhere. But those platforms have agreements with a lot, not all music is available on Instagram. Not all music is available on TikTok. These are streaming agreements. When I talked about the Kanye West leaked contracts, one of the things he was fighting with his label over were streaming rights and digital streaming rights. And if the artists get money, if the label licenses out their music to be used on a platform like TikTok, Twitch 
as a platform hadn't done that. And then Twitch as a platform didn't have a method for taking it down. So people were treating Twitch like the Wild West. And Twitch was like, hey, we'd sure like to not get fined hundreds of millions of dollars by the music industry for using unlicensed music, which was really a it's it's both a platform and a user failure, but at the end of the day, when the platforms fail like that, it's going to blow back on the user, and that's what we saw with streamers have, having to pull down everything, or with Twitch pulling down their entire channels because they were gaming for 12 hours with music on in the background. So it's it's very interesting to see the platforms kind of reckoning, and I think Google's kind of Children Online Privacy Protection Act shift was a signal to a lot of platforms that, hey, you can't ignore these, eventually it's going to catch up. And the FTC fined Google $170 million because Google just hadn't bothered to put those regulations in place on their platform. And now the terms of use on most platforms have changed and your channel will be at fault if you don't adhere to the guidelines right. And, and they're not saying just adhering to the platform's guidelines are good enough. You have to apply the changing legal standards if the platform hasn't caught up yet. That's on the creator. And that's where this stuff can get a little challenging. Yeah, <laughs> one word for it. Just going back to your YouTube channel, I guess um, because you do occasionally touch on YouTube uh, conversations as well, um, and you are a legal expert, do you find a lot of people asking very specific questions about their channel in terms of usually copyright to which you know you can only uh, provide really long-winded answers because uh, it's a very <laughs> complex conversation to to have with creators because that's what we get asked this a lot and we it's very difficult i'm going to give you like a quick fire round of some of these a little later but yeah is it is it worse for you uh, like uh, and also do you do you actually um have any clients or con- do you consult with any youtube creators legally I do consult um, with creators because I don't do representative legal work anymore. I don't file lawsuits and go to court. I do do consulting because legal is a conversation. And that's what my chat knows and my moderators know it too. When people seem to be fishing for free legal advice on my channel, it it gets shut down pretty quickly um, by me as well because I don't know your whole situation. So we can talk about these topics broadly. (laughs) That's always the case, isn't it? Yeah. You ask a question in a single sentence, like we don't know your particular circumstances. It's so difficult to give a full answer. Yes, because it really does depend, which is why I use the the news stories that I use because we have as much information as we have. And I can say, look, in this circumstance, this is what it is. These factors would change that. And so I can give people kind of benchmarks for how to do the analysis on their own. And then I answer a lot of questions about the cases that I deal with so that people are like, oh, but if this, then this, and I can answer those because we're hypothetically talking about a fact pattern that just might involve some people that are famous. But yes, I do get asked. And yes, I tend to avoid those questions because I can't always answer. It does depend. I find it not as much in my chat because the law nerds kind of know. I find it when I now go into clubhouse rooms that I will pop into a YouTube clubhouse room and it's like, ah, Emily's here. We were just getting asked about copyright. Emily, come on up. And I'm like, hi, (laughs) (laughs) this is not free legal advice. We're not creating an attorney client relationship in general. You own Look, the thing with copyright is you own what you create and respecting what other creators have created is part of copyright. It's not, I get a lot of questions like, how do I get around this? And I come from the, you don't, you don't get around it. You understand what the system is and you respect other creators. So then you understand the boundaries. And that 
is not always an answer that people like, but we, as creators, we respect other creators and that's, that is the way that it should be, I think. Yeah, yeah, Emily, but, but this other channel's doing it. Why can't I do it? <laughs> okay, they can do it. If everyone jumped off a bridge. No, I mean, I'm the, I'm the parent <laughs> of a teenager, so I, I default into my mother with stuff like that. Yeah. And, and yes, other channels are. And this, this is platform frustration that I see with creators. And I am not a creator that's going to go around and just be like, ah, oh, YouTube did this and the algorithm that. I really love being on YouTube. I love the platform of YouTube. I watch a lot of YouTube. I fixed my coffee maker because YouTube showed me how to do it and I didn't have to spend $500 to send it out or whatever. I have a very expensive, I love my coffee, but I do see that this is a user problem for creators when one channel will get struck down for something and people are like, right, but these three other channels are doing the same thing. Can you please take them too? Please take them too. And so the way YouTube implements its, um, its rules and its terms of service can feel frustrating when you see, yes, that channel did it wrong. And these channels are also doing it wrong. Can you get rid of everyone that's doing it wrong? I find that that makes it feel random to the users and it gets frustrating and it's like, oh, well, they got away with it. I can get away with it. That's not what it is. It should be, I'm creating the best content I can create so I don't run afoul of the platform that I like being on versus they're doing it badly. We're going to sit here and say, okay, if they're doing it wrong, YouTube should handle it. But there gets to be this feeling like YouTube's not handling it and the rules are being like metered out unfairly. And that is a that is a platform issue, and I think it's a bandwidth issue on YouTube's end. But YouTube hasn't called me to ask. But if they want to, I'm here. I, I would love to have these chats. <laughs> <laughs> is it is it fair to say then um, you you through your unique uh, standing and experience and expertise can almost monetize this conversation in the sense that people are asking these questions and trying to get answers and you're one of the very few people who's able to provide actual legal legal guidance on this and i'm not saying that as a bad thing it's like it's supply and demand like people can ask us but we can't really charge for an answer because we don't necessarily know the answer but you're able to do so and that's just i guess another income revenue stream or or am i missing the mark there a little bit no absolutely and i've i've shifted into consulting yeah. because i want to be accessible a lot of attorneys work on a retainer basis. Hey, my retainer is five to $10,000. I will do five to $10,000 worth of work. I charge, I mean, based on my years of experience, an attorney with 15 years, depending on where they are, would be between, you know, 400 and, and 1500 an hour, depending on the expertise. What I find is unique for me is that I'm also a creator. So when I talk about the practicality of certain things. It's because I am a creator. I'm also a lawyer. And I've also been a criminal attorney. I've worked with business owners who have done things wrong and gotten in trouble. I've worked with clients who have, you know, Dan says, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. I always say you can't put the poop back in the horse. I just say it more colorfully. (laughs) But that's the phrase I use. And I've worked with clients who have who have the poop is out, and then they're trying to figure out what to do. So the experience I bring is from both perspectives, and I I love the platform I'm on. I'm empathetic to creators, but I'm also a lawyer who's going to tell you if you're doing it wrong how to do it better. So yes, I do do consulting work because I want someone to have a place to ask the questions. And when I'm full, there are a few other lawyers that I trust with creators. A lot of lawyers, if you call up a local attorney from Yelp in your area and say, can you talk to me about YouTube fair use? They're going to be like, yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. Mm. I don't understand the platform. And I don't understand how to even give you advice on what that means. 
because again, it's two lanes. It's how to stay right with the platform and how to stay right legally. So if we were to wrap this conversation up in a nice little bow, we talked earlier about when you might start to think about turning your YouTube uh, channel into an LLC or, or a business. Or like, Do you think there's a point where creators may start to seek legal counsel? Not that I necessarily want you to tie your own businesses, but like, um, do you, can you see like when a channel is maybe like, I don't know, 20 million subscribers, so each video gets 5 million views, but just having that legal advice before they push that video up, because that, as you say, like $500 an hour worth of advice could save a channel hundreds of thousands of dollars in ad revenue if it falls foul of whatever, you know, copyright laws or anything else. Absolutely. I think there's kind of two aspects to it. The first is as you're growing a channel and growing in your lane, if you're not quite sure what your lane is, it's worth excuse me, it's worth having a consultation. And a lot of attorneys will do that and talk generally about, and I do this with commentary channels a lot. What is commentary? What are the boundaries as I see it with commentary? And just talking about what your content's going to be and what the red flags are from my perspective. Then as your channel grows into that million, five million, that's when you start to see creators who have law firms on retainer because that's when you start having bigger issues. What you don't want to end up is being like James Charles H3H3 fighting over whether somebody stole a merch design. You want to be able to know that you have someone to call and say, hey, (laughs) what do I do about this? And then have the decision with your legal team of, is it worth pursuing? Do I pursue it on social media? Do I just let it go? Because then you're getting into deep areas of intellectual property, trademarking, uh, copywriting, logos, putting out merch, dealing with sales tax, dealing with products, dealing with brands. At that point, you need to have an attorney that you can regularly talk to. And that's where you start seeing um, attorneys on retainer. I'm covering a large lawsuit in the beauty industry. And that particular YouTuber, it's a 9 million sub channel, has two law firms working on this. And one of the lawyers slipped into a footnote. Some of the other YouTubers that they represent, the lawyer's like, I'm familiar with YouTube. I represent Ryan's Toy Review and, and some other channels. And it's like, oh, you just casually represent big YouTubers. But at that point, big YouTubers need to have counsel that they can regularly call, not just about intellectual property, but also about personal safety and security concerns, also about potential lawsuits like defamation, also platform issues, if there is a platform issue where you need to have legal counsel. So at that point, somebody's with a law firm that has literally different divisions. They have the intellectual property division, they have the the litigation division, and you need to have those people to touch out to. By the time you're at 20 million subs, it's too late. You already should have an attorney on retainer that would have told you not to put your home address on your LLC back before you had 100,000 subs. <laughs> so get a million subscribers, apply for your gold play button, get, get a, a lawyer. lawyer. Yeah. And <laughs> and look for, depending on where you are, by the time you're at a million subs, I mean, of course, there's these channels that go viral with certain things and they hit a million subs out of nowhere. But if you are a professional creator and want to be a professional creator, reach out to other creators in your creator community and ask who yeah. they work with and start finding. I know I've talked to a lot of creators about that because I'm a lawyer and they're like, oh, I work with so-and-so. And I'm like, how did you find them? Oh, I asked this YouTuber, this YouTuber, this YouTuber, and all three of them work with so-and-so. And that also lets you know that there are there are some law firms that understand the business of being a creator, not all of them. 
fascinating stuff. I mean, I, right? I don't know. I'm going to See? Return, You're return like, all how, this information. How but, do we have a yeah. law nerd channel? It's like because it's really interesting stuff that affects all of our lives and it keeps changing. We're never going to run out of things to talk about. People keep mm. getting sued. <laughs> there'll, there'll always be somebody getting sued. Right. <laughs> or Dan. suing someone. I mean, the Taylor Swift Evermore lawsuit with this fantasy park in Utah is just oh, yeah. fascinating to me. It's a LARPing park that's pissed that her album's named the same thing. Her lawyers sent all kinds of sassy letters to them, like, step down. They didn't. And now Taylor Swift has countersued them. It's magical. It's magical lawyer wow. sass, and I love it. Yeah. So our community has brought uh, <laughs> a lot of questions, and we're going to ask you some of them right now in a quick fire round. So... I, we probably covered a lot of this stuff already, <laughs> but uh, add appropriate music and dramatic uh, moments here, Dan, if you can. I won't uh, be doing that. So here we go. <laughs> I'll Rob, go first. Would you like to present yeah, the first I'll question? I'll go first. So, right. if, um, so Emily, uh, I'll ask you a question. Just try and answer it as succinctly as you can. If you use an editing app that offers special effects and stuff like that, can they copyright your video because you use their special effects? It depends on their terms of use. <laughs> Look at the terms of use for what yeah. you're using. Go on, Dan. I, I know. Let's, I'm let's sorry. keep this quick. You said that, succinct. That <laughs> answer threw me off because I, I get so many questions, and I always just want to say it depends. Next question, because it always does. All right, uh, I got one. As a musician, I find it extremely unfair that our covers of songs get copyright claims. As cover artists, we aren't claiming we wrote the songs. We just put our own spin on things, playing it ourselves out of respect for the song and the musicians who wrote it. There are very, very specific copyrights that go into music. I have a lot of content regarding whether Taylor Swift can sing her own music. Um, I have a few podcast episodes <laughs> about it. But it's because the label owns the rights, the copyrights to the melodies and the, the music. The writer owns the copyrights to the actual lyrics. And there are bounds of transformative use. And you have to have permission from not just the person who owns the copyright to the lyrics, but to the person who owns the copyright to the melodies and just altering a song, not in a parody format, but just altering a song to cover doesn't always count. There are exceptions for live performances, but if you are a musician, there are lawyers that are experts in this field, but live performance exceptions to copyright don't extend to YouTube. I'm so happy you mentioned melody copyright because that's something I learned when I did a video about copyright, a very basic one. And I think I use Cindy Lauper's Girls Just Want to Have Fun as an example. Like she wasn't the, um, it, it became very popular through her song, but the original artist, uh, I think, created the melody five or ten years before. Anyway, let's move on to this not so quick uh, fire quiz. Uh, <laughs> how do people react to music videos and still and are still able to monetize? A lot of them aren't able to monetize or have limited monetizations, but on the back end of YouTube, if you use a song that is allowed to be used, it will split the revenue to the copyright owner of the song. So if you react to like a Dolly Parton, and there's Twins the New Trend do this on their channel uh, very well, but if you react to the song and you're allowed to use it for copyright, it will either split the monetization or it will send all of the monetization to the owner of the copyright for the song. And you'll see that in the back end of YouTube. So it might look monetized on the front end, but that money might be going to the copyright owner for the song. I think I know the answer to this next one, or at least part of the answer, but I'll ask it anyway. If you have permission to use a copyrighted song, should you dispute the copyright claim? If you can prove that you have permission, yes. 
Yeah, this is this is always this interesting thing whereby you can have permission, but that doesn't mean necessarily mean that YouTube knows you have permission. So then you have right. to almost get claimed to then get it taken off, which is why yeah, you have to tell them yeah. that you have permission, but you have to have permission to all of the copyrights. And this again, you see artists that write their own music that don't write that write their own lyrics that don't write their own music, you have to have two people's permission. So if you are working with like a small artist and you have their permission, you have to be able to prove it. Those things should be agreed upon in writing. Uh, and and this is where, it. you know, privating or unlisting the video first to resolve those issues is um, something you can try. Uh, you can certainly do. And, and I, I see, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, YouTube is rolling out better, um, better processing on the back end, So you can see if there's issues before a video goes live, but yeah, uploading something and immediately making it live if you're if you've got questions about it isn't always the best isn't always the yeah. best plan. So you can deal with it with YouTube before um, it gets live. I see quite a few channels featuring TikTok montages with copyright music. How do they go up while mine is taken down and demonetized while theirs uh, theirs is not? That is going to be a platform algorithm issue, and it might just be that the way they're montaged is getting around the algorithm for now it doesn't mean it will be forever and this is a problem with uh, youtube shorts right now which have been flooded by tiktok mm -hmm. uh, tiktok ripoffs um i've noticed dan go ahead all right why does youtube copyright claim my video even if i put the details of the music <laughs> in my description i'm not youtube i don't know no i'm teasing <laughs> um because putting the details isn't getting permission it's still <laughs> copyrighted and dcma takedowns are real and the platform doesn't want to get charged by the music industry and you really can't do that there are plenty of options for music that is royalty free yep. reused content i have been demonetized from using some content which i'm sure i have significantly added value to but youtube's not satisfied with my work and they go ahead and demonetize my channel Will you please explain in detail, uh, you don't have to do that, the YouTube community guidelines concerning reused content? That is a really good question, actually, because when YouTube often send the email, you know, somebody's applied for the YouTube Partner Program and YouTube rejects it for reused content and then they don't offer really a specific reason, like it was these videos that did it, it leaves the creator really frustrated, not entirely sure what they've done wrong. And that is a... That is... <laughs> this is not a rapid fire question. Transparency in how the platform does things is something that all of the social media platforms are struggling with. Yes. So transparency is not there. You also have to remember that during COVID, YouTube is working from home too. So even trying to get to somebody to deal with this is almost impossible. Creator support on Twitter is a good option, but for reused content, if they're not finding that it's transformative use, it's not that they're judging how good your use is. They're judging how transformative it is based on algorithms and finding a way to use and work within the algorithm is critical, but you're also dealing with algorithms. So sticking to best practices can help. Why YouTube does what they do, I cannot answer for you. I am not a YouTube lawyer in the sense that YouTube does not pay me. So I don't Dan, know their trade secrets. I, I think we covered the big ones in there. Uh, just thanks to our community for for asking these questions, for having an interest in this in the first place. I think it's so important. Uh, Emily, tell us where everyone can find you all over the internet. I am the Emily D. Baker all over the interwebs. I kept it simple. 
It is the Emily D. Baker everywhere on the YouTubes, the Twitters, and the Instagrams. And I'm everybody's favorite legal commentator. So I do talk about copyright in lots of different contexts. I talk about YouTube lawsuits. I talk about music industry contracts. So if you're interested and you want to be a honored, just come on over. And I just want to say, uh, Emily, thank you very much for sharing our vidIQ certificates. But those are our intellectual property. And uh, we will be contacting <laughs> you very soon about that. I'm going to stop tagging you immediately. <laughs> this was a trap. This whole thing was a ruse. We finally got her. Yeah, we don't care about the, the likes. We, we want some money. Those certificates are so fantastic. They are one of my favorite things. And, and I have used vidIQ on my channel since I realized that you could tag videos, which was probably about a year and a half into my, my explorations on YouTube. And it has made it, not only does it gamify it a little bit for me, which I love, but it's also made it really easy to see how my videos are going to perform against other videos. It's great. Thank you so much, Emily, for all of your time and your kind words about vidIQ as well. We always appreciate that. We hope to see you on the podcast or live stream or somewhere very soon. We'll have to do this again. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tube Talk brought to you by vidIQ. Head over to vidIQ.com slash Tube Talk for today's show notes and previous episodes. Enjoy the rest of your video making day.